You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, I'm Leslie Ann, and I'm so glad to have you here today. This week in Bible Study, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-12, through 12, and continued our discussion of submission in the Christian life, this time in the context of the home, and finally, in all of life. In this section, as in previous verses, Peter calls believers, as the people of God, to let their good conduct preach the good news of the gospel to those around them. For more information about Our Lady's Bible Study in Brandon, Mississippi, visit LeslieAnnJones.com. But we've been talking over the past few weeks about what it means to live as people of God, sojourners and exiles in a world that is our temporary home. It's not our forever home. And so because we are here temporarily, not in our forever home, we've, we're here for a reason. The mission we've been given is to proclaim the excellencies of God, calling people out of darkness into his marvelous light, both with our words and our actions in all contexts of our lives. So last week we talked specifically about what that looks like in our civic life, in our interaction with governments and um, human institutions, as the text put it, whatever that institution may be, PTO, Neighborhood Association, whatever it is. Um, so we talked about that, and we talked about in the workplace. Obviously, the bond-servant and master relationship is not the same as an employer-employee, but it's the closest thing that we have. And so today we're going to continue that conversation, talking about living as the people of God in an unbelieving world that is not our home, but... <laughs> Before we do that, let's talk about what submission is and what submission isn't. Again, to review, because it's important, I think, anytime we enter into this discussion of submission to get a, a good picture of what it means biblically, because there are all sorts of misconceptions about what submission is, what it looks like, not just in the home, but in the church as a whole. And so we went over some of this last week, so I'm going to run through it quickly because this is review. So first, we defined biblical submission as a voluntary laying aside of your own will in order to honor the will of another. It's an attitude of deep respect and deference that puts the other's desires above your own. And because of that, it is countercultural in this very self-centered, me-centric world that we currently find ourselves in. It makes it altogether different from the norm in our society. And it is also a gift. It is freely given. It is not something that can be demanded or commanded, but it is offered up as a sacrifice of sorts. So... With those things in mind, then, let's talk about what submission is not. Most of the time, the things that make us uncomfortable in these these discussions about submission, especially in marriage, are those misconceptions we have about it that come either from culture or bad TV shows or people abusing their privileges. And because we associate those things then with submission, um, we get a bad taste for it in our mouths. (laughs) It kind of makes us squirm a little bit when the topic comes up because the prevailing cultural notion of submission isn't what biblical submission is at all. So biblical submission is not, we talked about some of this in the discussion time, it is not a license for abuse or domineering behavior, violence and abuse of power in the name of establishing authority or control over another person is wrong, always. It is not right and it is not biblical. 
It is not permitted by scripture. So those who use the Bible to defend their abusive behavior are mishandling the word of God, and it is not okay. Submission is not something that can be demanded or exacted. Nowhere in the Bible does the does it allow those in authority to force submission out of another? When the Bible talks about submission, it is always a willing, voluntary act by the one who is in the more vulnerable position to the one who is in authority. So it is always described as willing, not something that be, can be commanded or required. It is not a call to blind obedience. So biblical submission is always to the Lord first, then to other people. If other people are asking you to do something that is sinful, that is contrary to the will of God, that is immoral, you do not have to, nor should you, submit to that will. Um, we are accountable first to God, always. We are his servants. We are his slaves. And as his servants, as his slaves, we then submit ourselves to another. Submission is not a measure of value. The one who submits is not less than the one who has authority. It is simply a way of establishing order in organizations and in households so that they can function properly. How do things go when there are too many chiefs and not of Indians? Nothing gets done. So somebody has to be a chief. Submission in marriage does not mean that the husband is better than or smarter than or more intelligent than or any of those things than the woman. It simply means that the Lord has given him authority. Both men and women, both husbands and wives, both bond servants and masters, both children and parents, all of these submissive authoritative relationships that are mentioned in the Bible, each side is equal in value and in worth in the eyes of the Lord. And with that said, submission is not just for women. It's not a woman's topic. It is a Christian topic. So within the church, we are all called to submission, first to the Lord and then to one another. So with all of that said, we're going to turn to this passage. And I forgot to read it like I usually do. First thing, I'll read through all of it. And then I have this divided into two sections. Um, in the home, this call to let our good conduct proclaim the good news of the gospel first in the home and then in all of life is the second section. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and then I'll pray and then we'll talk about it. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for your um, willingness to speak to us through it, God. I pray that you would speak to us now, that you would take this word and minister it to our hearts, and that you would plant your truth in our minds and in our hearts, that it may grow there, and that we may be different because of it, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us now, that you would grant us the ears to hear and the eyes to see, and that we would know and understand your will. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Okay. First, as God's people, we are called to let our good conduct proclaim the good news of the gospel in our homes. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Did you notice the play on words? Even if they don't obey the word, they can be won without a word. They can be won without a word by the conduct of their lives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So what do you think the likewise means there at the beginning of the verse? Does it mean that wives should submit to their husbands in exactly the same ways that bond servants are called to um, submit to their masters? Or do you think it's something else? I think it's probably just a signal that Peter is shifting his discussion to another group of people. Like, in the same way we've been talking about this good conduct in this area of life. Now, in the same way, we're going to talk about good conduct in another area of life. And so, he's talked to bond servants about being good workers. He's talked to all of us about being good citizens. And now, he turns his attention to women and calls them to be good wives. So, it has to be said that this call to submit has limits to it. It does not say that all women are required to submit to all men. So I am not called to submit to Jay, and Emily is not called to submit to Dennis. That is not how it works. Um, So there are limits here to this call to submission. It is limited to the confines of marriage. So submit to your own husband. So last week, when we talked about the Roman institution of slavery, I said that there was a very real fear among society of the Christians that with all of their talk of freedom, that they were going to undo the very fabric of society. And that's because the prevailing philosophy of that time, this is something that Aristotle wrote about quite a bit, was that the household was the building block of the society and that the society as a whole was only as strong as its individual units. As as long as those building blocks were strong, then the whole of society would be strong. This is how they built their empire was by placing a focus on the strength of the household. So anything that could potentially disrupt that traditional order of things was viewed as suspicious, which explains why Peter and the other New Testament writers included these household codes in their writing. Because as people came to know Christ and their lives began to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, then they needed to know, practically speaking, how to continue to do life in the contexts in which they found themselves. And so they are speaking into the context of life of real women and real men in real situations and just helping them along and how to live in light of the gospel. So in that society, strict order within individual family units was maintained by the pater familias, which was the male head of household. 
and the rest of the family then was expected to fall in line. But their family units weren't defined in the same way ours are, like, you know, husband, wife, children. It was the entire extended family. So that the Potter Familius had authority and control over the whole of it until he died. So that meant that if you were an adult son with children or even grandchildren of your own and your father was still alive, you and all of your offspring were under his authority. And when the paterfamilias died, then the authority went down to his oldest son. And that is how it went from generation to generation. The paterfamilias had absolute legal control over his children, including the power of life and death, even of adult children. So if a child was born and was a weakling or struggling or had some sort of deformity, um, the paterfamilias, the, the male, could decide that um, that child did not de deserve to live, could be left out to die in the elements. Other times they were left on the steps of temples or such to be taken in. Other times they were just sold off into slavery as babies. If a father decided to do that sort of thing, to sell a child off into slavery, and at some point in that child's life they managed to gain freedom, remember we talked about how they could eventually buy back their freedom, they could still be sold again by their father into slavery. That is how absolute his control over them was. There was no freedom from the authority of the paterfamilias. So this is the harsh kind of society and setup that Peter is writing into. Um, and we need to keep it in mind when we read these passages because it sheds some light on the reality of family life in those days was not the reality that we enjoy these days. <clears throat> the authority of the father was undisputed. But that authority also came with great responsibility. So fathers were legally responsible for the individual actions of the individual members of the family. So they had great authority, but then they were the ones who dealt with the consequences if anything happened. If one member of their family um, acted out of line. So they took discipline very seriously. Obedience was expected since ultimately the paterfamilias was liable for the actions of individual members of his family. So it's becoming clear then why if an individual member of the household, whether it was a slave or a wife or a child, decided to become a Christian and Christians were being viewed with skepticism by the rest of society, how that might become a much larger issue within the family itself. With that in mind, another aspect of life within the Roman household was that the entire family was expected to follow the religion of the father. There was not individual freedom of choice when it came to religion. Everyone in the family was expected to serve and worship the same gods. And so as the church and its influence grew and more and more women and slaves and basically the vulnerable began to be added to its numbers, then it made everyone else really uneasy and the situation got tense. So because of that, the church was beginning to experience hostility individual church members, women, slaves, children who had placed their faith in Christ were beginning to feel the effects in a very real way at home, at home, especially those who were most vulnerable and who were likely to experience hardship or suffering for choosing to follow Jesus. 
And that's why in these verses, Peter spends so much time talking to bond servants and talking to women, but he only gives one verse to the husbands because they're not going, they're not in such a vulnerable position. No one is going to beat them for choosing to follow Christ, but that might happen to the wives and to the servants and to the children. So all of this needs to be read and understood within that context because it is so very different from our own. Unless the father, the head of the family, himself converted to Christianity, following Christ was in subordination in and of itself. It was an act of disobedience for a wife of an unbelieving husband to choose to follow Christ. So it was of crucial importance for believers to be shining, exemplary, model, moral members of society in all other ways. Especially in our passage today where Peter is talking specifically to the wives of unbelieving husbands, you can see how tricky and delicate that situation might have been for them. They were walking a very thin line. Peter instructs them in this situation to behave as good wives in Rome were expected to behave, submitting to their husbands for their own sake, but also for the sake of the gospel. They had to prove, not just with their words, but with their actions, that the way of Christ was a good way of life. He says that they are called here, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of, your, of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct without a word. These husbands surely knew what it was that their wives had believed, or at least they thought they knew. It wasn't words that they needed to hear. They needed to see the goodness of the gospel at work in a life to be changed by it. So Peter specifically says here um, that these husbands are going to be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. But I think a lot of us women especially turn to words immediately <laughs> when things get tense. Well, that's not true. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like make that generalization for all of us. Some of us turn silent <laughs> and maybe a tad bit passive aggressive. Um, some of us talk too much. <laughs> and can't stop talking until something unfortunate happens some some doors are slammed some some people storm off in anger and that is within our very liberal by these standards modern american society so obviously um our society is not the same as theirs by any means they were dealing with a whole other can of worms than, than we are today in our own marriages and in our own homes. But the truth of the matter is that no matter whether it was then or whether it is now, it is never easy for a believing woman to be married to a man who doesn't share her faith. It is a kind of suffering all on its own that brings with it its own set of hardships and pain and disappointments and years of anguish for many. It is not easy by any sort of means. But the words I think that Peter offers up to these women of unbelieving husbands still speak today and they are so tender because he's not offering guarantees. He's not offering any promises. He's not saying you will win him over someday. 
He's not saying um, that it's, it's definitely for sure going to happen, but he says someday it might. Someday it might. And he says that the reverent and pure life of a God-fearing is a beautiful thing, even in the eyes of the world. If an unbelieving husband can see a woman's fear of the Lord and purity of life, if she is growing in godliness as the Holy Spirit begins his transformative work in her life, it is a beautiful thing, not just in the eyes of the Lord, which we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes, but in the eyes of the world. If a Roman husband can recognize the goodness of that type of life, then so can anyone. And there is hope. There's hope there. Um, let your good conduct proclaim the good news of the gospel inside the four walls of your home. Even if your husband refuses to hear your words, even if he won't go to church or attend worship or pray or do any of those things with you, there is still hope. And the hope is that someday you may reach him through your actions. So the word for all of us, because I don't think any of us are in that situation, in this room at least, is the same as it was to them, that our good conduct should proclaim the good news, even if everyone in your household is already a believer. And the question then is this, what type of conduct within the home proclaims the gospel? What is it about her conduct that would preach the gospel so effectively that it would cause an unbelieving husband to change his life? And here's the follow-up question. Don't feel the need to answer aloud. Is your life proclaiming such a gospel inside the walls of your home, in the privacy of our own homes, where we um, feel free to let our hair down and sometimes get angrier than we would anywhere else? I mean, I'll be the one to confess that hairbrushes get thrown in our house on Sunday mornings. But we're not talking about parents and children here. (laughs) I don't throw hairbrushes at Dennis, although I've thought about it. How we act in the privacy of our own home matters. And what we are communicating with our actions also speaks. We all know that an eye roll or a look of insolence, a slammed door, a stomped foot, they all communicate. (laughs) And we laugh because it's common to all of us. We know what it is to do those things. And we are all going to do those things from time to time because we are human and we are sinful. And at least on this side of eternity, we're not there yet as far as that. We, we have not reached the glorification stage of salvation. We are still in the sanctification stage. We are being made holy. So thank goodness we're not as bad as we used to be, but we are so not there yet. And all you have to do is ask anyone who lives with us, right? We are all going to demonstrate sin in our homes from time to time but it should not be the norm that coldness that anger that selfishness that need to be right that need to control all of those things should be the exception not the rule by and large our conduct as believers ought to reflect something else altogether, and it ought to be reflected in the ways of Jesus. And those things were not his way. 
So be mindful of the things that you are communicating with your actions in your home. This is not just for the wives of unbelievers, I think, but a good word for all of us. So let's move on. Verses 3 through 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Is Peter saying that we should never dress up or wear jewelry or put on makeup? No. He is saying that we should not use our physical appearance as a way to manipulate or coerce or convince our husbands (laughs) to do our will as opposed to theirs. So that's one thing he is saying here is that you do not control your husbands with your words and you do not control your husbands with your physical appearance. Although, I mean, never mind. (laughs) It is effective. (laughs) But his second point is also true. It isn't effective for very long because as some of us were discussing as we were arriving, it all fades. Dietra and I have decided to no longer color our hair and Veronica also. And so we are all sporting some of those signs of fading youthfulness. <laughs> yes, it all fades. Um, but the things that don't fade, those are the ones that we need to invest the majority of our time and our energy in. And Peter puts it this way. He says, the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Be the kind of woman who cultivates the kind of beauty that never fades. Specifically here, Peter mentions a gentle and quiet spirit, (laughs) which for those of us who don't feel very gentle or quiet most of the time can be a little problematic. And I think sometimes these verses, um, they're hard. (laughs) They are hard for women like myself who also like to speak. (laughs) And um, yeah, I'm not the gentlest person ever. Honestly, I know this is a great shock. So do you think that Peter is saying here that we need to be pushovers to be considered beautiful in God's eyes? Um, What about being silent? Is he saying here that women should be silent in the home? I mean, it says a gentle and quiet spirit. Do you think that's what he's getting at? Thank you. (laughs) No. Um, It does not mean that we have to keep our opinions to ourselves. It does not mean that we will never be heard. Um, What Peter is describing here are the qualities of humility and peacefulness, gentleness in the sense of meekness, not um, weakness. It's a quiet strength that is rooted in a deep and abiding faith in God. So, with that said, let us be the kind of women who put on the goodness of the Lord, like clothing, to grow in our love and our knowledge for Him, and let's cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in the hidden person of our hearts. Um, Because a woman whose heart and whose life have been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit is precious to the Lord. She's a treasure, valued and highly esteemed, beloved and beautiful in His eyes. And His eyes are the ones that matter. These are the things that the Lord thinks is beautiful. Y'all, I know we joked about physical appearance, but especially in our culture, so much value is placed on beauty. 
there are so many things out there to keep us from aging, to tighten up that tummy or to make it look as if you never had children or that you're not, you know, approaching 40 <laughs> or 50, 60, 70, whatever it may be. There is so much in our culture to tell us about what is beautiful. There is a lot of um, emphasis placed on physical appearance in our culture, and we can joke about it in here, but the truth is that each one of us has insecurities about ourselves that also have a bearing on our relationships with others, whether that is our marriage relationships or with friends or the way we view other women. And I think this is a good word for us. Um, I tell our daughters all the time, that pretty does not come from the outside. <laughs> I worded that all wrong. That's not really what I tell them. I ask them, where does pretty come from? And they say, pretty comes from the inside. Yes, that is where it comes from. And because you can put on makeup, you can lift and tuck and hide and contour, whatever you want to, um, but you can't cover up an ugly spirit. That spirit is ugly no matter how much makeup you wear. But the beautiful spirit is what matters and that's what makes a face light up and sparkle and it is joy found in the Lord bubbling over in a life that is contagious and just so very captivating beautiful a woman who is caught up in the Lord is transformed into his likeness what makes us beautiful radiant to the world around us people is and that is what Peter is getting here, that these things, it's worth far more than manipulating with your physical appearance or trying to use your words. This is beautiful. This is, this is what faithfulness in a life looks like. And it is noticeably beautiful to those who are around you. So quickly, let's move on to um, verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Follow Sarah's example, he says, who demonstrated her hope in God by submitting in obedience to Abraham. So I don't know how familiar you are with Sarah's story, or if you had time to go back and look through it this week. It covers several chapters in Genesis, and there were periods of great faithfulness and also some periods of not faithfulness on both her and Abraham's parts. There is behavior that is sinful, there are times when Abraham asked her to do things like mm, pretend to be my sister when we go over here in this foreign country so that the king can take you as his concubine. That was maybe a time when Sarah should not have submitted to Abraham's will. So I'm pretty sure that's not what Peter's talking about here. There were also times when Sarah imposed her will on Abraham, which looked like, hey, here's my servant girl. God hasn't provided us the heir yet, but you can have a baby with her. And that must be what God meant when he said we would have a child. And Abraham submitted to her will in that case, and that also did not turn out so well. So there's several examples of what, uh, uh, maybe not positive examples, I guess, what not to do there. Um, so that's not what Peter's talking about. What, what do you think he is talking about when it comes to Sarah's life? What did she do, right? She followed him. Yes. I mean, first and foremost, that had to have been crazy. Let's uproot our lives and let's go. Because what? God told you to? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. But no, she went. So that, first of all. And then also, I think when you talk about Isaac, 
Do you know how old she was when she had Isaac? He was 100 and she was 90. 90. So the Bible says, now, okay, if you live to be 300 or 600, 90 is just a drop in the bucket, whatever. Old age in Genesis aside, 90 is old. And it does tell us in scripture that she was past childbearing years. So she had been through menopause. Her body had stopped doing the things that are necessary to create a child, not create, to bear a child, to carry a child. And so she had been through these things. Her womb was essentially dead, but God, but God, he brought life to her womb, her dead womb, her barren womb. And Sarah knew then in a very real way that if God could do that, then he could do anything she had experienced it so years later when Abraham took that very same child her only child Isaac the child of the promise the child who was to be the heir of this great nation that God had promised to them up on a mountain to sacrifice him she says nothing Well, I'll tell you what Hebrews says about Abraham. It doesn't say it about Sarah, but about Abraham in in the hall of faith, you know, Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abraham considered that even if Isaac had to die, that God could raise him from the dead. He believed that God would see through this thing that he had promised. That had to have been a scary thing for Abraham to do, and it had to have been a scary thing for Sarah to keep on believing too. I think that's what Peter's talking about here, especially when he talks about do not fear anything that is frightening. Um, This is not about abusive situations in the home. It's not saying don't be afraid of your domineering husband. That's not what this is. This is talking about truly uncertain and frightening things that you will face as a woman of faith. Be like Sarah. Trust the Lord who gives life. Trust the Lord who resurrects. Even when you can't see a way out, when you don't know how things are going to work out, when you don't know what's going to happen and you can't see the way, you need to trust that God does and he knows what's best always. You can trust him. So let's talk very quickly about the one verse that's given to husbands and then we'll close out with those last um, several verses. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So first of all, notice here that husbands are not called to exercise their rights as the potter familius and demand submission from their wives. That is not what Peter says here. Instead, he calls them to treat their wives with great compassion And to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. Now, one of the questions in the homework dealt with that. We could discuss it, but I think we're running out of time. So I'm just going to say that I think he's specifically talking about here as physically. We are physically weaker than husbands. Therefore, do not dominate her physically with your presence. Show her honor. Be aware of your strength. She's weak. So it's quite the opposite of licensed abuse in the name of submission i would say and he gives two reasons for this first he says that women believing wives are co-heirs with believing husbands that means that they are going to inherit the same things that the husband is going to inherit someday in in eternity so in a culture where women did not inherit anything at all they had no rights they weren't going it was things were handed down to the oldest son remember 
This is a shocking truth. To say that she is of equal value as you, paterfamilias, she will inherit the same thing you will. She has the same standing and um, future that you do. Therefore, she is worthy of your honor and respect because she is worthy of God's honor and respect. He has honored and respected her and lifted her up and given her this standing. He has made her an heir. So honor that the way the Lord views her. And then second, the other thing that Peter tells him is that to not live with their wife in an understanding way would hinder their prayers. And I think that this um, should give us all a little bit of pause (laughs) because he's saying that a husband who mistreats his wife would be outside of God's will and that that would affect then his relationship with the Lord. And for us, it's a warning that our actions affect our relationship with the Lord and that sin is a hindrance to our nearness with him. We cannot treat other people with contempt and expect them to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. That's not the way it works in his kingdom. So let it be a warning not just to husbands but to us to honor others so that our relationship with the Lord may not be hindered. Okay. And finally, in this last section, Peter turns his attention back to the group as a whole. He has talked to individual members of the society, and now he's talking to us as Christians, as believers, as the people of God, sojourners and exiles who are far from home. He says again, let your good conduct proclaim the good news of the gospel in all of life. So in verses 8 and 9, he says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. First and foremost, he says, be Christ-like. These verses ought to sound familiar because they mirror the words that we talked about last week in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. When he talks about what Jesus did in his suffering, he did not revile, he did not disobey, he didn't lie, he did none of those things. So we're called to follow Christ through suffering and then into blessing. Jesus walked a path that led to the cross, but it didn't end there. And suffering isn't the end of our story either. We're called to leave the old ways of our life behind. The feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers have no place among the people of God, and instead we are to replace them with blessings when we are insulted, when we are mocked or belittled or slandered or made fun of in the media or on social media or made to feel inferior or stupid or small for our beliefs, we offer up blessing in return. That's super easy. And we do it because that's the way of Christ. Furthermore, Peter goes on here to quote Psalm 34 to say that there are blessings in store for those who turn from evil and do good, who live as slaves as God, honoring him and fearing him in all of life so that he may be glorified, the gospel may go forth, and others may be saved. This is where we are in verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Again, we have this reminder that the Lord is in control. His face is turned against those who do evil. Therefore, if you desire to live long, happy days, what does he say? Let you keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Leave that behind. Do good instead. This is the promise. It's the hope that we have in Christ that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and that he has heard our cry. Nothing that we face now in any area of our life, whether it's at home or at work or in out there in the world at large, none of it is beyond his sight. He sees it. He hears it. He knows it all. And furthermore, he has answered So many people will ask the question, if God was good, then how could he allow this to happen, this bad thing to happen? Why doesn't he do something? And the truth is that God has done something. He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to show us the way. In this world, we're going to face many troubles, whether it's at home or at work or elsewhere, in the body of Christ even. But there is good news here because even though we experience all sorts of trouble here on earth, what else did Jesus say? Do not fear, I have overcome the world. He came to show us the way, not just through the pain and the heartache and the tears and the brokenness that come in all these areas of life that we have talked about, but also to show us the way back home. We are to follow Christ sometimes through suffering to our forever home. So we follow him here, even if that road leads us to Calvary, because we know what comes next. We know what is ahead, and we know that home is just over the horizon, and that changes everything, or at least it should. So let us be a people, the people of God who proclaim the gospel, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, not just with our words, but with our actions, not just in public, but in private, not just to those we think who will agree with us, but especially with those who do not. Let your life preach the gospel in all ways, at all times, in all places, with all people. Preach the gospel with your life. Father, I thank you so much for your truth and your goodness, God, for your word to us. I pray that you would help us to live out this truth, that um, your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, God, transforming us into the kind of people, the kind of women who have beautiful spirits, who mirror your goodness and your kindness and your love and your faithfulness and your gentleness and your humility to the world, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be those people, that your name would be glorified in us and that your gospel would go forth. Your name would be praised. And it's here that we pray these things. Amen.